A woman I have known <clears throat> for many years um, spoke to me of the journey she undertook as she embarked on walking the pilgrimage route from her home in Holland to Santiago de Compostela in northern Spain. And it was going to be a three-month pilgrimage walk. She's 70 years old. And it would mean walking every day for three months from early morning till late at night in order for her to complete the pilgrimage. And she said when she started out, you know, she had a lot of enthusiasm and passion. And she said after some days, she found herself really doubting whether she was going to be able to really complete this. And she said as she started walking on that day when she felt so beset by doubt, she found beside the, the path a walking stick. And this is quite a tradition on this pilgrimage route for people to leave what they don't need for others to pick up. And she said she found beside the pathway this walking stick and she picked it up and it was absolutely the perfect size for her. And she said somehow this walking stick came to kind of symbolize for her the, this companion of perseverance and capacity and her main support. And she did complete the pilgrimage, which was quite something. So this evening I want to reflect on two more of the paramis, these noble qualities that are both expressions of an awakened heart and qualities that are also pathways to an awakened heart. And I realize, I've come, we have both come to realize, we have been far too ambitious. And um, so one of these paramis is going to get a whole lot more attention tonight than the other. So that's the cliffhanger. Um, now these are the paramis of energy and patience to reflect on how important those qualities are in your retreat here, how crucial they are for the practice you undertake. Now, the Pali word for energy, it's usually translated as energy, but the Pali word is virya. And virya, it is translated in a whole lot of different ways. Energy is one of them. But I think that's too narrow a translation. The accurate translation, apparently, of this word virya, which has many dimensions, is actually heroism. It's courage. Now, this quality of heroism also includes the dimensions of dedication, of enthusiasm, of wise effort, the domains of perseverance, of passion. 
for energy to be present, there equally needs to be confidence, wise faith. For energy to be directed, or for virya to be directed in a fruitful way, it initially needs the basis of mindfulness to be present in our life. It is mindfulness that allows us to direct energy and effort in ways that decrease pain and struggle and increase our capacities for wakefulness and freedom. I believe that we would all recognize that to bring anything at all to fruition in our lives requires energy, whether it is raising a child or climbing a mountain or realizing our most deeply held aspirations for compassion and love and freedom. Energy is certainly needed to meet adversity and the difficulties that we all inevitably face in our lives. The challenges of loss and illness and disappointment require quite some heroism. It requires vast resources of energy to turn towards the world and to turn towards this life in which so much can seem to be broken or fragmented. It actually asks for quite some depths of courage and commitment and energy simply to wake up in the morning and to go through this day without being overwhelmed by the perpetual nature of our emotions, our thoughts, our mental states, without getting lost or floundering. I think it requires a great deal of energy and effort and dedication to to walk this path as we're doing here that holds its moments of joy but equally holds its moments of doubt. At times, I'm sure you've felt this way, that the size of the undertaking can just seem so, so vast and impossible. And it's easy to become disheartened. And it requires energy. It requires effort, actually, just to persevere, to continue and to show up in an unwavering way. Now, virya, energy, courage, effort, is a necessary ingredient in all the changes and transformations that have ever taken place in our world. When we look at those in the past and those in the present that we most admire, um, who touch us most deeply, who've actually made really a difference in our world. If their stories, their journeys are very unique and very different, and yet I think they all hold this very common factor, this shared factor of virya, courage. But the heroines who inspire us, I think, are not just the Ansang Su Chis or the Mother Teresas of this world. There's so many countless unsung heroines. Think of, I, I have a neighbor, and they have a very disabled son. And 
I, I am in awe of the quality of courage and perseverance and dedication they have brought to raise their child with such love and such care. I see people who look after elderly parents with Alzheimer's or dementia, you know, where it just requires so much dedication to show up day after day with patience, with perseverance. The companion, to be a companion to someone who is not a companion to you. came across this story recently. It happened just a few years ago to two young children in a family from Illinois. The eight-year-old daughter became ill and was diagnosed with a life-threatening blood disease. A search went out to find a donor of blood compatible with her own. As she weakened, they looked and no donor could be found. Then it was discovered that her six-year-old brother shared her rare blood type. The mother and their minister and doctor sat down with the boy to ask if he would be willing to donate his blood to save the life of his sister. Much to their surprise, he didn't answer right away. He wanted some time to think about it. Six-year-olds can be quite thoughtful at times. <laughs> After a few days, he went to his mother and said, Yes, I'll do it. The following day, the doctor brought both children to his clinic and placed them on cots next to each other. He wanted them to see how one was helping the other. First, he drew a half pint of blood from the young boy's arm. Then he moved it over to his sister's cot and inserted the needle so her brother could see the effect. In a few minutes, color began to pour back into her cheeks. Then the boy motioned for the doctor to come over. He wanted to ask a question very quietly. He said, will I start to die right away? You see, when he had asked, been asked to donate his blood to save the life of his sister, his six-year-old mind understood the process literally. That's why he needed a few days to think about it. And then he simply gave what is in the heart of every human being to give when we are truly connected. I saw this kind of quality of virya, this, this kind of very quiet virya, um, in the early years of my practice when I lived amongst a group of Tibetan refugees, people who had lost so much, who had seen so much broken and so much damaged, and yet had so much courage to continue and more than just to endure or to survive, but actually to continue to care and to really live lives genuinely guided by compassion and patience and dedication. Patru Rinpoche, he once says, when you hear the stories of the lives of the great teachers, Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, of the deeds they did and the trials they went through for the Dharma, do not be discouraged. Never think they were only capable of achieving all they did because they were Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and that you could never do the same. Instead, remember that it was simply by acting in this way that they all became so accomplished.
this path we all undertake here is a path to awakening, and Virya is one of the most profound awakening qualities that we bring, that brings a path to fruition. It is central. As the Buddha said, he said, if I did not trust that this path and its fruition awakening was not possible for you, I would not ask it of you. But because I know and trust this is possible for you, I ask it of you. So I want to explore some of the dimensions of virya. And I want to use this word virya because it's like Narayan said last night. Sometimes we have a word in Pali that is so multidimensional that to just use one English word is just simply inadequate. So when I say virya, can you please think courage, dedication, compassion, enthusiasm, perseverance, effort. Okay, have you got it? That's the package. I don't want to say that every time. It would be a very long talk. So it's virya. Got it? Implant it. Let it implant. So what is virya an antidote to? Well, one of the major qualities or states that it's an antidote to is, is one is doubt, I would say, and the other really big one, often underestimated, is sloth and torpor. Because sloth and torpor, I mean, please take this seriously. Sloth and torpor is a disassociative state. It's how we dissociate. It's how we disconnect. It's how we disengage. And sloth and torpor doesn't just mean snoring and snoozing. Sloth and torpor has a whole lot of different dimensions. It expresses itself in the kind of life weariness, the kind of inner flatness of being, um, boredom. Sloth and torpor plays a big part here. Doubt, the mental states of depression and despair very strongly feature what sloth and torpor actually is. When sloth and torpor is present, it's this kind of numbing inwardly, this sort of numbing, this sort of dissociation. When sloth and torpor is present, and it can be present in so many different ways, we're very, very prone to lose confidence in ourselves and in the path. When you look at any time when you're in that mind state of just kind of numbness, flatness, weariness, disinterest, disconnection, you can see that inspiration and passion and enthusiasm, these are not the characteristics of sloth and torpor. Instead, when there's sloth and torpor present, we basically lose interest. We, we start to kind of fade away. We sort of disconnect. We want to be anywhere but where we are. And I think to understand virya, I think we actually really need to understand sloth and torpor and its effect on us. Because virya doesn't arise when sloth and torpor magically disappears. Virya doesn't arise when any difficult mental state disappears. That kind of thinking is, is, is both magical thinking and, and it's postponement practice. 
imagining that there's surely going to be a better moment to be present in, a better moment to cultivate wakefulness and compassion and kindness in. And I think postponement practice is actually one of the more insidious side effects or manifestations of sloth and torpor that essentially keeps us stuck. So Virya is part of this mandala of of uprooting all of these domains of of sloth and torpor, which include lack of confidence, um, disconnection, lack of interest, lack of motivation. And Virya is about uprooting all of this. Um, And it's very closely allied to investigation. I mean, the Buddha once said that... um, What did he say? The Buddha once said, in those who lack confidence, nothing positive will grow. Just as from a burnt seed, no shoots will ever sprout. Faith is the greatest wealth and treasure, the best of legs, the basis for gathering all blessings like arms. Now, I would actually say that Virya is in an ongoing dialogue with sloth and torpor in all its domains, just as it's an ongoing dialogue with confidence and investigation. All of these qualities are so interwoven. And it's really a dialogue that actually asks for our participation and to understand that dialogue. I mean, I don't know if you've had the thought at all in your practice, you know, that, you know, when this goes away, then my practice will start might have arisen once or twice. (laughs) This dialogue really asks for our participation. So so look at confidence. Look at confidence. Look at your sense of confidence in your practice, in this path, in this teaching. Because it's very clear that what we trust in, we will invest energy in. What we trust in, we will give attention to, and what we trust in, we will value. If we doubt something, we don't. It's a, it's a very simple and very obvious equation in our lives. So here we have this path. It's, it's, it's a landscape of possibility. And it offers many, many encouragement, and it offers to all many possibilities, not just for a select few. We speak about the possibilities of boundless compassion, of boundless kindness and equanimity. We speak about the possibilities of liberating insights. But you speak about the possibilities of living an awakened life. These are possibilities for each one of us that can be realized. So the question that's really on the table is, do we have confidence in our capacity? both to walk the path and to realize its possibilities. So what kind of dialogue do we have in our own practice, in our own lives, with the possibility, the genuine possibility of bringing struggle and torment to an end and uprooting its causes and realizing the very same awakening as the Buddha? This is a path that seeks graduates. 
the Buddha was never interested in perpetual disciples or students. The Buddha was totally interested in graduates. This is, I think, a deeply important dialogue to engage in because it's what supports our path. And without confidence, it said, without virya, a person is like, it's being like a person in a boat who has everything but the oars. We kind of drift around. So without confidence, I think, in ourselves and in the path and the genuine possibility of awakening, we experience, likely to experience, what I call episodic virya. So we have a so-called good sitting, a good walking, and we are inspired. You feel the virya rising, you know. You're looking up caves on the internet, you know. Where's the best cave? There's got to be one out there for me, you know. We imagine it, and we're signed up for the three-month retreat, you know. We're kind of choosing our Buddha clothes or whatever, you know. (laughs) Only to find that our energy collapses, (coughs) and the virya collapses at the next sitting or walking, which feels disastrous, hmm? And then we find, you know, we find ourselves falling asleep on the cushion or in some mind store, storm and telling ourselves a story that we are the worst meditator after, ever. And considering our new life after being a failed yogi. There's a story from Ajahn Chah, if I can find it. More question if I can read it. A master dis- uh, uh, oh, a modern master described how the Buddha had encouraged his nuns and monks by stating that those who practice diligently would surely be enlightened in seven days says this in the Satipatthana Sutta, by the way. And if not in seven days, then in seven months or seven years. <laughs> it's a manageable time scale, isn't it? <laughs> huh? So, A young American monk heard this and asked if it was still true. And the master, Ajahn Chah, promised that if the young monk was continuously mindful without break for only seven days he would be enlightened. Excitedly, the young monk started his seven days, only to be lost in forgetfulness ten minutes later. (laughs) Coming back to himself, he again started his seven days, only to become once more lost in mindless thought, perhaps about what he would do after his enlightenment. (laughs) Again and again he began his seven days, and again and again he lost his continuity of mindfulness. Seven days later, he was not enlightened, but had become very much aware of his habitual patterns and wandering of mind, a most instructive way to practice on the path to real awakening. 
Now, the kind of confidence we speak about here is very clearly different than ideological belief. It's not blind, it's not unquestioning, it's rooted in investigation. Investigating our capacity to step back with mindfulness, to take a clear and honest look at our lives, at the nature of our minds, the nature of our bodies, at the universal laws that run through all of our lives. A willingness to take a step back and to face our mortality and the mortality of all things and to truly see that there is nothing we can call our own, that we can define as mine. Not this body, not this mind, not this identity. We begin to see our emotions and psychological processes and the ways in which our personal world is being constructed moment to moment. We see a lot in this practice. We begin to see for ourselves the causes of suffering and the ways that it can come to an end. We begin to develop that discernment inwardly to actually see what is helpful and what is unhelpful. We are not here just to look at things with the kind of cold eye of attention. We're actually here to understand what leads to entanglement and what leads to an end. These are moment-to-moment lessons for us. We don't have to go somewhere else for this investigation. We actually have everything we need right here. If we really want to understand about greed, hatred, and delusion, we basically just need to close our eyes. If we really want to see what leads to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering, we just really need to close our eyes or go up and down our walking path a few times. And all of this becomes begins to become clear for us. We also begin to see that the key to unlocking the prisons we find ourselves in of contractedness is a key that we hold in our own hands. When we see this, there arises one of the key factors of virya, which is interest, passionate interest. Not superficial, We do see that we give up the ideas of quick-fix strategies. We give up magical thinking. That if we just change the conditions of our life, then I would be happy, then I would be content. And we find, actually, the willingness to walk the path as if our life depended on it. There's a very natural formula that when there is interest, there is attention When there is interest and attention, there is energy. This is not news for us. We've seen how this works in many, many areas in life. When you first fell in love, no one had to tell you to pay attention. We can have plenty of energy if we go and watch a good movie or or listen to some beautiful music or be out in the beauty of nature. We see how naturally interest and attention and energy comes together. We can actually even have that same that same combination of, of interest, attention, and energy when we focus on our favorite obsessions. Hmm? 
our, our resentments or our cravings, you know, or, or our angers. It's the same formula works, interest, attention, energy, but there's something different in this path because it's not just about attention in this path that leads to awakening. It's actually about wise attention because we all have attention. But I think there's a real question at times of what is wise attention because we see how easily our attention is drawn to the bright, to the lurid, to the dramatic, to the exciting, to the intense, inwardly and outwardly, whether it's in the events of the world or the events of our own mind. We see how easily our attention is drawn into our preoccupations, our fantasies, and our rehearsals, and all the proliferations that can fill up our minds and lives. But part of virya, Part of very is discernment. This is so crucial. It's discernment. Discerning what is wise to attend to. What is and what is unhelpful. What is wise to attend to in that it will lead to the end of struggle. And what it is unhelpful to attend to because it will lead to further entanglement. Part of developing wise attention is really that quality of discerning what increases suffering and what decreases suffering. Developing wise attention rests upon something else. This is actually quite a complex landscape. But developing wise attention also rests upon something else. And part of it, what it rests upon, is our willingness to let go and to release our habit of distractedness habit of being diverted, of being deterred. There's a saying in the Tibetan tradition that says, preoccupations will not end until the moment we die. But they end when we put them down. This is their nature. Virya also then manifests as effort. And perhaps we recognize that we're always practicing something. There's always effort going into something. And you might just recognize, helpful to recognize in our thought patterns, you know, and our preoccupations. It's very helpful to recognize that preoccupations and and obsessions do not have an independent self-existence. They are sustained because actually we're putting energy and attention into them. So whether we're moving or still, whether we're silent or speaking, whether we're acting or choosing not to act through our body, speech, and mind, something is being practiced. And the path of awakening asks us to be aware of this moment to moment and ask ourselves right now, what are we practicing in this moment? What are we embodying in this moment? And is it in the service of perpetuating suffering and conflict and struggle, or is it in the service of living an awakened life? We bring our lives into this domain of wise intention and wise attention and out of the domain of habit and impulse. This is the work of mindfulness. It's the work of investigation. 
And the way in which virya manifests in wise effort is recognizing that we do have choices about where we direct our attention. Right now we have a choice. I can choose right now to pay attention to my foot touching the ground. I can choose right now to pay attention to the light. I can choose right now to pay attention to what is going on in my mind. We could all have, you know, great philosophical conversations about suffering and impermanence and non-self. But to live in the light of these universal realities, to live in the light of our understanding of the values of kindness and compassion actually takes effort. We could all have aspirations to live the kindest, most equanimous life in the world, but it takes effort to rescue us from rescue those aspirations from the realms of idealistic or wishful thinking. The effort that's asked for is not about striving, it's not about forcing. It's a conscious honoring moment to moment of our deepest aspirations, backed up by confidence, resting upon wise faith. To, do, to take this step of kind of redirecting our attention, and that's often what we're doing in this practice. We're, both, we're redirecting our attention out of what is unhelpful into what is helpful. And so we are learning actually to develop wise attention. But, you know, it's not an easy path. And part of the effort that is needed at first to step out of the habits of distractedness, the habits of feeding what is unhelpful, it's the effort of restraint, not a very popular word in our culture. And if we see how much restraint, how much re- restraint is about safeguarding our hearts. You know, when we use in the meta practice, may I be safe and protected, we're not talking about some wishful world, you know, where there's never any uncertainty or danger or challenge. We're actually talking, when we talk about being safe and protected, we're talking about safeguarding our hearts. Not just from the world of conditions, but from our own impulses of ill will and craving and delusion and fear from our own impulses and habits of preoccupation and rehearsal and fantasy and distractedness. We're learning to safeguard our hearts. May I be safe and protected inwardly. To know that kind of refuge within ourselves. Living in this world wisely takes the effort of of restraint, knowing that this life, this world, certainly does not need any more contributions of blame or anger. It takes so much effort and restraint to, to save ourselves, safeguard ourselves from diving into familiar patterns of self blame and judgment and loathing. In in the domain of effort, it's really good to discern what is helpful to welcome and what is actually helpful to wisely avoid. 
It's kind of like if you are having a dinner party and you had a gatecrasher knock at the door. And you could offer them, you know, say, how do you do, and offer them a glass of water and say goodbye. Or you could invite them in for a five-course meal. And you know what? If you invite them in for a five-course meal, they're going to think, this is a great place to hang out. I'm coming back. It's as much the same with many of our habit patterns. Hmm? They're often offered a five-course meal of blame or judgment or you know, preoccupation or obsession or busyness or strategy. No surprise they come back. Hmm? It takes great effort to consciously cultivate the lovely, the qualities that gladden our hearts and minds, to nurture our capacities for spaciousness and calmness, kindness and appreciation. These are not magical qualities that befall us. They are inwardly generated, that deeply grow again through our tending to them. It takes effort to calm the hindrance of agitation, to brighten the mind in the hindrance of dullness, to cool the fires of craving and aversion, and to be steadfast amidst doubt. Virya is very much a factor of awakening. And rather than thinking of awakening with a capital A, a state, or a noun, we always need to turn this into a verb and to think of the ways in which it may be possible for us to awaken the moment. I think one of the greatest gifts of virya is liberating the heart from being held in the grip of conditions, the world of conditions. It's so easy to go through life believing the conditions we find ourselves in hold the intrinsic power to make us happy or unhappy, to make us angry or glad. This is a great burden upon the world, but it's also so, so unrealistic. Imagine if you were meeting someone for the first time or getting into a relationship with someone and you looked them in the eye and you said, make me happy. Um, What do you think is going to be the outcome? (laughs) I mean, most of us would think that's really not a good idea. And yet, don't we look at the world around us often and say, make me happy or you make me unhappy or you make me angry or you make me sad the very essence of the Buddha's teaching was actually to really challenge that belief system conditions in our life can be really difficult really sad really painful conditions in our life can be really lovely really delightful, really gladdening. But it is our own hearts and minds that is generating anger. So it's our own hearts and minds that's also generating gladness, happiness, well-being. Looking moment to moment at what we are feeding, what we're directing our attention to, being quite sure that what we feed will grow, both the wholesome and the unwholesome, the skillful and the unskillful. I think part of the world of conditions that can so much govern our 
speech, our actions, our thoughts, our aspirations, is actually the condition of the state of our mind. You notice when the state of mind is very doubtful, very bleak, of course it shapes our world. But there's something else, you know, we touched upon this in one of our groups. I think part of often our, our culture, or, or maybe it's just us, we, we actually hold this very powerful belief system that says how we feel about something um, is the most legitimate and determining factor in how we're going to speak, act, relate, and choose. If I feel good about something, I'm going for it. You know, if I feel bad about something, I'm not doing it. I'm moving away from it. It's pretty standard kind of belief system that how I feel is the queen of consciousness. Um, In this belief system, anything else is other than how I feel is actually deemed to be kind of inauthentic. This uh, this belief system is really hard work, um, and it really doesn't have much to do with the path of awakening. Think about how many times in our lives we engage with someone or something not because of how we feel, but because it's worthy. Any of you who've been a mother will know the times you got up with a crying baby in the night. You really didn't feel like it. But you do it. Any of you who've ever looked after an aging parent knows the way that you show up, not because you feel like it, but because it's worthy. If you've ever had a friend call you when you're tired and weary and worn out, you don't feel like listening to their distress, but you do because it's worthy. If you ever found yourself rushing through your life in a hurry to get somewhere and suddenly see someone struggling to cross the street and you don't feel like stopping, but you do it because it's worthy. Something is more worthy than our prevailing mental state. This is really important. (laughs) There are things more worthy than our prevailing mental state. That's a big one. Hmm? That's a big one. But look at it here. Here you all are. Nobody went to your room and got you to come to the talk. You know? Imagine if we said, "Don't, don't sit unless you really feel like it. (laughs) don't even think about walking unless you really, really feel like it what would this retreat be like? Hmm? it would be governed by impulse it would feed into all habitual belief systems but you come, isn't that amazing? you come and you sit and you walk not because of how you feel, because you're honoring something far deeper. You're honoring some sense of possibility, some sense of aspiration far deeper than the prevailing mind state. And you will experience the fruits of that. There's something in that which I think is so, so deeply important for our lives. And you know what? That is virya. If you want the short definition of virya, it's acting and living in the service of what you honor rather than your prevailing mental state. That is heroism. 
That is courage. That is the very embodiment of perseverance. So don't think fear is so far away from you. You are actually living it. You're actually embodying it. It takes courage to, to meet ourselves, to embrace adversity with grace, courage to turn towards the suffering in the world and to respond with compassion, to meet loss and failure and to be upright. And it takes courage simply to stand in the midst of this changing and uncertain life dedicating ourselves to discovering a true inner refuge. You know how much courage it takes, very it takes to follow the pathways of metta rather than inversion, to follow the pathways of generosity rather than withholding. And yet Virya needs something else, and this is a very short bus tour of patience. <laughs> To do. <laughs> what to do? Because the near enemy of Virya is obvious. It's striving, it's forcing, it's insistence, it's ambitiousness, it's demanding certain outcomes. That is the near enemy of Virya. And that is why patience is so interrelated, so interwoven with courage and with perseverance. We see how easily we become impatient with others, impatient with ourselves. And impatience is a kind of aversion. Hmm? We become angry when things don't work out the way we want, when we don't get what we want, when our path doesn't produce what we've heard it should produce, when we go to an interview group and hear somebody's story of joy, and then we are so impatient with ourselves and at times disheartened. Patience is not about endurance, but it's about our willingness to rest in not knowing, our willingness to rest in uncertainty. We walk the path without knowing its immediate outcomes. We don't know the benefits of a single sitting. We don't know the benefits of a single walking. We don't know when the seeds that we plant will flower or in what way. And we know we can trust in that. We cannot shout at the snow to melt. We cannot shout at the flower to open. Things will bloom in their own way. Patience guards us against losing balance. Patience guards us against leaning forward into the next moment, seeking for the proof, the proof of the benefits of our efforts and our virya. Patience is an antidote to that leaning forward that allows us to be upright. Many times we want something to be over. We want something else to begin. We become frustrated when our world and other people and ourselves somehow don't fit in with the timetables we have. Patience is about giving up the notion of hope, giving up the notion of a future. Patience is about our willingness to be upright in this moment with what is trusting, trusting and having confidence in the seeds that we're planting 
having the virya, the perseverance, the dedication, the passion to actually tend to those seeds and never knowing how they or when they will flower. Patient with ourselves, patient with others, patient with all things. It's a, it's a kind of a quieter, it's a quieter yielding to what is that allows us to be upright, allows us to embrace all things. Okay, if we're just a moment quietly together. Buddha said, if I did not trust that this path and its fruition, awakening was not possible for you, I would not ask it of you. But because I know and trust this is possible for you, I ask it of you. So now we have a walking period and then we'll come back for the last sitting of the day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.